Well, that was our cue. Somebody say 33. 33. 34. 34. And 35. And 35. So we are in a wonderful and a precarious position this evening. I say precarious because we have a long history of taking only one chapter per evening and thoroughly investigating every detail of that chapter. Tonight, we're going to need to depart from that paradigm uh, because we want to stay in step with the Spirit, and we're sure that He has shared with us certain things. It's become clear to the leadership of the churches in the One Association that we're living in the days of Jeremiah. I had no idea that we would have both Pastor Slaughter and Pastor Hutchinson here tonight. But the Lord seems to be saying the same thing to all of us. So we needed to bear in mind with us that uh, we have to have a slight format change. Uh, It is also a wonderful thing to know for certain how God feels about the times we're in and what we must do. We're going to go to the book of Jeremiah. So over the next two sessions, we're going to complete Chronicles. Tonight, we'll cover the reign of Manasseh. Somebody say Manasseh. Manasseh. Amnon or Ammon. Ammon. We'll, we'll, we'll go with Ammon tonight. And Josiah. See, this will allow us to cover chapters 33, 4, and 5. And to do it in enough detail to do them justice and still finish Chronicles next Monday. Next Monday, we will be recapping highlights from the book. We will look at the cycles and the patterns that we've identified. And we'll close the book. And Jeremiah picks up right where Chronicles drops off. We began the study of First and Second Chronicles in April of 2020. We've covered an astounding variety of historical biblical, and spiritually pertinent topics. We've had 37 sessions that average two hours apiece. That's quite an in-depth study. Many of the prophetic patterns, historical gems, and practical applications are meticulously detailed in the notes that we will provide for you. We will give you all of the notes at the end of next week's session. Next Monday... As we conclude the book, we're going to put into your hands our work product with all of the footnotes and all of the research for all of it. As we begin tonight, rather than read three chapters and then go back to the first chapter, we're going to take them individually, singularly, and expand uh, or expound rather and comment on the biblical narrative We're going to try to minimize thematic tangents. You know how we do. We find something that's exciting and chase it way outside the text. Tonight, we're going to stay within the text. We want to pick the most prominent themes that um, only utilize the necessary scripture strings to reemphasize the point. Uh, We only do that for your retention and application. But I'm saying that because tonight we're not going to hand out 36 scriptures to prove a point that we can do in a single scripture. We won't get through all of the chapters. It's a tough task to to teach three whole chapters in an evening. And there's something kind of glorious about it. You'll get a bigger view of it than you would get if we broke them down slowly. So 
Tonight, 33 through 35. Amen. Next Monday, chapter 36. Following Monday, just as our New Year's Eve bonfire said, we will be in the book of Jeremiah. Amen. Uh, I trust you'll find that the Spirit gives witness to it all along the way. So the first thing that we want to do is have Pastor Hutchinson stand up and pray for us. And then Jennifer is going to read our first chapter, 33. We'll comment on it and then come. we'll work that way. Pastor, please. <laughs> Amen. So as Jennifer slides down and finds the 33rd chapter and begins to struggle with perfect enunciation and uh, speaking Hebrew names, if you hear something tonight that you're unfamiliar with, there's nothing that we will mention that has not been mentioned in previous weeks. That should be your clue to ask somebody on your left or right what they mean by that, to go back through your notes. The goal is to retain these things. We're we're raising up teachers, not passive recipients. Does that make sense? Okay. Jim, let's pick up in chapter 33, read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanon, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved images he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land. I assign to your forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all of the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh's prisoner but a hook in his nose bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Amen. So he brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring, in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and encircling the hill of Ophel. 
He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in, Drew, in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. There are other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to God and the words of the seer spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all of his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself, are all written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace, and Ammon his son succeeded him as king. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased his guilt. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah, his, his son, king in his place. Wow. Look, as we ask Brother Linton to begin reading verse 1, I promise you will be thankful this evening we are covering three kings. <laughs> so we're going to tackle it as it comes, but we will not be finishing in the life of Manasseh this evening. Amen. Did you get verse 1 for us, Brother Linton? Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. Wow. 12 years old, and he reigned for 55 years. Look, briefly, we have a slide for you, and we'd like to remind you of his ancestry. Ahaz was an awful king. Awful. He closed the temple doors. And much like us during COVID, at first we thought that was a bad thing. And so we began to examine what was in the temple during his days. And it turns out it was a good thing those doors were closed. However, his son Hezekiah was one of the best kings in Judah's history. He got that filth out. And he opened the doors immediately to the temple of God. Now, unfortunately, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh, who we, we are covering tonight. This was his son that was born during his supernatural life extension. Remember, Hezekiah got an additional 15 years beyond what was originally ordained. If you had 15 years given to you, you would hope to produce something better than Manasseh, huh? Yeah. So think through this with us just for a moment. Due to Manasseh's age at the time that he said to be placed on the throne, 12 years old, most scholars believe that he had a time of co-regency with his father, meaning that he was learning to lead alongside his father while he was still living before his death. Now, this time of co-regency was time for discipleship. It was time to learn to walk and act as his father had. As I'm sure you heard in the reading and will become increasingly aware of, this was a squandered gift in Manasseh's life. He is the longest reigning king in Judah, Manasseh. From David to now, he is the longest reigning king. It's like Murphy's Law. The one who is the crappiest leader leads the longest. <laughs> you might find that out here again soon. <laughs> yeah. 
For you scholars and historians, we're talking about from 690s to about 640s is his reign. If you're thinking through your ancient Assyrian history, Babylonian history, that is the time frame that he reigned in. This means he was living contemporaneously with the fall or the devastation of Samaria by the Assyrian Empire due to their wanton idolatry that could not be corrected by the prophets. Now the reason we're pointing that out here, as Justin picks up in verse 2, is everything that Manasseh did, he did in the backdrop of watching the northern kingdom of Israel judged for the very activities that he's doing. So you have to picture that your neighbor's got a meth lab and you watch their meth lab burn down their house and all of their children become destitute and you think, you know, it'd be a great idea. Meth lab. A meth lab. (laughs) Because that's kind of what's happening here. This is some of the language of Ezekiel where he says, look, I thought when we judged your sister, you would turn around and you didn't. You became more wicked than she is. And for obvious reasons, I don't want to quote those verses in Ezekiel. That is what is happening here. That's Manasseh's reign. Linda, pick up in verse 2 and read down to 3. He did evil in in the eyes of the Lord. Mm. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Wow. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baal and made astropos. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and Mm. worshipped them. Man, this is retrograde in every singular area. After having the reign of Hezekiah, everything is being undone in such a short time. Manasseh is imitating the nations that the Lord has driven out. He's imitating the nations that were there before the Israelites got there. And that is key to understand because Leviticus 18.28 says, And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out. It, the land, will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. The land will vomit them out. Ezra here is laying the groundwork for the reason that the people were going into captivity. You could see the writer threading these things into the story so that you can know why they are being sent into captivity. When you're thinking about that, you know that God makes a covenant with Israel. And one of the things that they do is they honor the Sabbath. So one day in seven, they are to revere the Lord. Did you know that a covenant was made with the land itself and that the land every seven years got a year to rest when it comes down to it the the babylonian captivity that is coming jeremiah links directly to the violation of the sabbath for the land itself he says it will get it the covenant in the bible is a covenant between uh, the people of israel the god of israel and the land of israel and all three are equal parties Now, it's terrible that Manasseh is returning to the practices of the original inhabitants. But that was a long time spread from them to Manasseh. I think what's even worse, it's retrograde because a son is undoing the work of his own father. That is a short distance of time. He's undoing the work of his own father and practicing the same evils as his grandfather. He's doing the very same things that Ahaz did, one of the worst kings of Judah. This is the opposite of repentance. Repentance is a 180 in the right direction. Manasseh is taking a 180 in the complete wrong direction. Now to quickly gain a sense of the negativity being expressed here, 
consider the Hebrew text of this passage. In the Hebrew it says, And he worshipped all the host of heaven. All the host of heaven. He worshipped the Sabaot of heaven. In other words, he was worshipping real celestial powers other than the one true God. And it didn't say that he picked and chose one like Asherah or Chemosh. He was worshipping all of them instead of the one true God. If Hebrew is not your thing and uh, Greek is, is more to your liking, check it out in the Greek. In the Greek, Baals and he made sacred groves and he did obeisance to all the military of the heaven and he served them. See, the Greek makes it just as clear as the Hebrew. If you remember the celestial powers teaching, star powers, yeah. do y'all remember that? Yeah. It's clear that Manasseh is worshiping lesser Elohims and he knows it. It's not as if he's worshiping wood or stone and thinks it's wood or stone. He is intentionally worshiping the other powers in the heavens, and he's doing it in a very specific place. Yeah. Well, we pick up in verse 4. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord has said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the story hosts. See, like Ahaz, who is Manasseh's grandfather, we keep repeating that because we want you to get an idea, be able to place it in family history somewhere. Like Ahaz, Manasseh's grandfather, Manasseh is bringing foreign altars into God's house. Do you remember that Ahaz went to Assyria, saw an altar, brought it in, and not much longer after that, the temple doors were closed. God just would not abide by it. Well, Hezekiah got rid of all of that. And his own son, the grandson of Ahaz, is reinstituting it. But this time it's not an altar, it's altars, plural. And where did he bring them? He's bringing these foreign altars into God's house. And the thing is, this, the, the writer, Ezra, says, where God said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. He is intentionally polluting the name, character, authority, and reputation of God's house. The one place where God would dwell forever. Imagine this scenario with spiritual eyes. Like, think for a minute that you can see into the heavens, because you can. And the gods, the uh, lowercase gods, the Elohim, the archons of Psalm 82... The ones that are being indicted because they're unjust and God is going to take back their territory. He's going to take back their nations. What is happening in the heavens when their images are being brought into the throne room of God on earth and the person doing it is a Davidic son? You're beginning to feel the weight of that? Yeah. Yeah. This kind of sin leads to only one thing. Death. Pick up in verse 6. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanon, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Wow. It's an extraordinary statement. As we already mentioned, we have much to cover this evening, so we're not going to go back through the valley of Ben-Hanon. But its relationship to hell is something that is consistent in Greek and Hebrew. Gehenna. You can review that in our teaching on Ahaz. But the point here being that he's doing the exact same thing as Ahaz did, his grandfather. 
Both the grandfather and the grandson are killing sons in a valley that represents hell. Connect those dots. Grandfather brought celestial powers into the temple, caused the temple to be closed, and ended up killing his own sons. Now grandson, knowing that history, is doing exactly the same thing. Like, we often don't believe that we have these kind of problems. And yet, can we view abortion any other way? No. Consider the story here and how preposterous it is, except it's real. You're the survivor of a family that had seven abortions, and you're the only one that made it to fruition. And you go about repeating the exact same process just one generation later as a grandson. It's almost as if the sinful nature doesn't learn lessons. We also don't tend to call it the same thing, but they say here that they're practicing things that the nations did. That Ezra said Manasseh was imitating things that were done in the land prior to Israel coming in that were abominable to the Lord. Sorcery, divination, witchcraft. Look, tonight we don't have time to go through the Hebrew and Greek cognate studies. I mean, we went through them, but we're not going to take you through them. But we want to kind of give you a sense, if you will. So rather than walking you through the semantics of what each of these words mean, I want to give you an idea of how they practically play out. Sorcery, seeking power or insight from evil sources. The idea is you're looking to get a leg up, so you're willing to reach to places you should not be. Divination, consulting evil. It literally in the Hebrew is derived from Nahash, a serpent. Consulting knowledge from the serpent rather than the one true living God or anywhere that the serpent's influence shows up. That's always worked out well for humanity from the garden forward, right? And the third one, the one that in English we're most familiar with, witchcraft. This quite clearly indicates that you're seeking to control others through evil actions and carnal means. Again, you're looking to control or dominate through evil actions and carnal means through ancillary sources. Look, when we think of it this way, perhaps each of us have more of this in our life or have dealt with this more than we would like to admit, particularly with the words that are used in the text. Those are things that we don't normally say, hey, brother, I'm struggling with witchcraft. But are you struggling with a fleshly domination of your problems and your issues instead of depending upon the one true God? Because in Hebrew, they're the same. Using worldly techniques to gain influence. Consulting worldly sources for knowledge instead of God. Or trying to control the behavior of other people around you through carnal means are all manifestations of what they practice. Now, we're not going to do this long, so we, we do want to camp on this for a minute. Hey, Christian, you got any sorcery in your life? Nope, all good. You got any divination? No, I hadn't, hadn't done that since Grandma uh, gave me her tarot cards when I was little. You, you, you got any witchcraft? No, never. That stuff's of the devil. What about do you use worldly techniques to gain influence? Because in the Bible, that's sorcery. Do you consult worldly sources for knowledge instead of God? Because in the Bible, that's divination. How about this one? This one struck at my heart. We had to stop, pray through the tabernacle over this one. When we're thinking of biblical witchcraft, the Hebrew word is broad enough for this that it actually implies trying to control the behavior of others through worldly or carnal means. <laughs> Which one of you is not guilty of witchcraft? We had to repent of it. Yeah. Yeah. OK? 
Okay. He brought these in without window dressing. I mean, just blatant. They sneak into our lives in ways with window dressing. Okay. But it's worth noting. Look, Leviticus 18 and 19 warned the people of God to avoid these behaviors or they would be thrown out of the land or vomited out of the land. Deuteronomy 28 even says that the result of going astray in these areas would cause cannibalism of your children. Well, at least it's not, you know, that big a deal. Yeah, I mean, it's just a minor nuisance. Yeah. Listen, we want to look at Leviticus 26 together. But as he just shared on a personal level, wrestling with this, it brought me to repentance today. In fact, there's a few of you that I'm going to find and clear things up after this. Not because you sinned, because we sinned. We, we, we want to get it right. As we read this, you're going to hear things that are shocking. But consider the seeds that have brought them to this point with the three categories we just told you about. Leviticus 26, 27 through 32. If in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to, continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger, I will be hostile toward you. Now, what is God considering being hostile toward him is acting in these three areas. That is what he's saying here. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. Man, that's strong language, isn't it? Man, God would never hate, would he? Absolutely he would. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. Look, this is not a verse that's often quoted in Sunday school. Nobody had that memory verse this week, huh? No. But this is what God says will happen, that you will resort to even cannibalism of eating your own children if you practice these things. You know, when we think of those three things, we're like, you know, I, I don't watch Harry Potter. I don't engage in witchcraft. But isn't it, isn't it funny we have a semantic drift to even explain away that those things aren't in our lives when that is what we do? Have you ever been reading the book of Galatians and, and come to the works of flesh are obvious and immediately you excuse half the list because it doesn't seem to relate to your life? That's because they're drawn from Hebrew sources. Yeah. Okay? The Hebrew backdrop for the book of Galatians is these things. And, uh, and listen to what he says about living in the flesh. And listen carefully in light of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, uh, Leviticus 18 and 19, because they all correspond to this. Paul is a master of the Torah, and when he's writing, he refers to it in a stringing pearls manner that we miss. Would you read it, Justin? Now notice in Galatians in this chapter, he mentions sorcery and witchcraft as acts of the sinful nature. He says in verse 15, he says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Do you catch that connection between Leviticus 26 and Galatians in this regard? The works of the flesh lead to the worst places imaginable, but they don't present themselves that way. It seems like you just needed to more, use more force to get this guy to do what, what should be done. Mm-hmm. 
and you don't really realize that that kind of manipulation is a manifestation of the flesh. It is a kind of witchcraft. It's not the way that the people of God operate. And when we do, it brings captivity. It closes the door. Why are churches closing all around us? It's not because of COVID. It's because there's nothing going on inside of them that God wants to spread to the rest of the world. The choice to either walk in the flesh or the spirit in this sense, I'm going to restate them for you in a little different way. It it revolves around these kind of choices. Do I use worldly (laughs) techniques to gain influence? Or do I solely rely on the spirit of God for influence in the world around me? That choice, which one of us hasn't gotten that wrong? Well, that's the choice between sorcery and being led by the spirit. How about this? Do I consult worldly sources for knowledge instead of God? Or do I solely rely on the spirit and the word for knowledge uh, to navigate my present circumstances? Because that's a choice between divination or relying on God as the only source of knowledge. We don't frame it that way in our thoughts. We say things like, well, it was only natural. It was kind of worldly wisdom, you know. It seemed logical. It seemed logical. Yeah. Okay. How about this one? Do I try to control the behavior of others through carnal means? Or do I solely trust in the Spirit of God to move upon others? See, that choice is a choice between witchcraft, or to put it in our language, manipulation, or waiting for the Spirit to manifest. Man, when I started to look at this, I thought maybe we should just teach this verse tonight. You know, like we could really drill down on this. But that's not what we're going to do. We want to get back to our text and we want to do so without deluding ourselves. When you're reading about Manasseh, don't don't excuse yourself from the situation. Don't think for a minute that there's nothing that Manasseh did that is present in your life because that would be to treat the word of God with contempt. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to learn from this older brother. I'm convinced that there's more sorcery, more divination, and more witchcraft present in the church world today than in any era of Israel's history. It's just less obvious to us, but it's not less obvious to God. Let's pick up in verse 7. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God sent to David and his son Solomon. In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Pause real quick as we keep reading. I just want you to notice the emphasis here. He said to David and to his son Solomon. Now, there have been prophecies. There were things that came up to the orchestration of the temple. But he's calling back to mind David and Solomon as he lays this out. Pick up in verse 8, brother. I will not again make the people of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to the forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Look, Judah's going to take you through some insightful things here, but it's the second time that Ezra, or the chronicler, has made the point that the people of God are doing more evil than the nations that he threw out ahead of time. When you read that list of, of things that they were doing, well, it make you blush in church. I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. 
Yeah. You know what that looks like in our setting? When our divorce rate is exactly the same as the world's. Yeah. When the same kind of pornography problems that occur in any home in America are occurring in any church in America, it's exactly the same way. We're not having to work to contextualize this. We're working to strip away some of the uh, delusions of our time. Yeah. You're credited with righteousness. We actually have to be righteous, though. Yes. Yes. Look, we're going to intentionally zero in on what Ezra's emphasis is in these verses and throughout the passage. It, it's worth meditating on the if-then or if-only statements that appear in the Word. If only they will be careful to do everything I command them. Ezra is cueing us in into God's promise and our relationship to an if-only statement can drastically change the way that we view it. Yeah. He's letting you know that there was something great that was good, that was in store for God's people, and Manasseh's relationship to it was the one that was wretched. Yeah. Look, to that point, I'm going to read to you out of 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 15. This is about the original promise to the Davidic house that Ezra is referencing. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, speaking to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How long? Forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. Listen, this certainly brings to mind Jesus, the son of David, to most of us. And it should. It is a promise about things that will come to pass. But in the Peshat, in the historical context, in the most simple form of what he's speaking about, this is about his son Solomon, and then the sons that would succeed Solomon down the generations. The promise is that even in discipline, the Davidic line would stand forever. That when they do wrong, they would be flogged, but he would be with them forever. Let me give you a few ideas before Justin reads our next passage. So, no, 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 this is about Jesus. Did David understand it is about Jesus? Did the audience understand it is about Jesus? How long would it be before somebody could read this verse and it have any meaning in their life if it is only about Jesus? Also, what do you do with the phrase, when he does wrong? Yeah. So, oh, well, Jesus was credited with our sin. Yes, exactly. He never did anything wrong. I'm not saying that it is not about Jesus. I'm saying that it is more accurately about every son that would come through the Davidic line. The point is that the promise stands forever, and when one of them gets out of line, they would be chastised, but the dynasty would not be removed from the house as it was Saul. Come on. Our super spiritual interpretations ruin the actual practical meaning of the verse. Come on. I love that you see Jesus in it, but if you only see Jesus in it, then you might as well tear out the rest of the book and just turn to the book of Matthew, which you also won't understand because it opens with Jesus as the son of David. Right. Okay? It's very important for you to understand the Davidic covenant is a promise to a dynasty, and it includes 
that the promise does not go away and is not superseded when they do something wrong. It simply means they will be punished. But the promise will remain forever. Are you all following that? If that's not clear enough, watch this. So I'm going to read Psalm 89, verse 30 through 37. But before I do, realize that Judah's passage, 2 Samuel 7, was written before there were any descendants of David reigning on the throne. Yes. Before any possibility to mess up the promise occurred. Psalm 89 is written during a time of travesty, written during a time of correction. And look what the psalmist says in verse 30. If his sons forsake my law. Wait, his son or sons? Sons. Oh, so it's not just about Jesus. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. Okay, hold for just a second. If you're going to correctly interpret 2 Samuel 7 as Jesus, then why does it become plural in Psalm 89? Okay, because it's, it's only Jesus to the extent that Jesus is a son of David. But it was true of every son of David. You understand what's at stake there? This one idea has caused many branches of theology to say because they did wrong, God has replaced them with another group of people, i.e. the church, And it's still inside the Davidic promise because Jesus is a Davidic son. The promise was never to a specific son. It was to all of them, a line forever. I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever, say ever, ever, betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. To whom? David. That his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Look, this is written during a time of calamity, and it is proof that the Lord will never, ever break his promise to the house of David. But if the house of David is sinning, then they will be chastised, not removed from the covenant, not removed from the promise, but they will be chastised so that they can partake in it in the future. This is Ezra's point leading into captivity. This is why when this is happening in Manasseh's life, Ezra is recording the promise that was given to David. So that they could remember that God's promise still stands. Isn't it good to know that if we're headed into a time of judgment as a nation or as the world at large. I think the nation then the world at large. But however you see that. To know that God's promises don't change because of that. It's a chastisement. It's a correction. It's a refinement. But it doesn't end your promise. He doesn't say well now I'm going to choose the house of Islam. Because if he could replace Israel, then he could replace you who replaced Israel. See, it's it's a really bad school of thought. It also would mean that Joseph Smith and his horny little followers would have a point that, that you could be replaced. The whole point is that God made a promise to the line of David that was irrevocable. 
Which is why Romans 11 that you quote about spiritual gifts and stuff and has nothing to do with spiritual gifts says that the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. It's talking about the national destiny of Israel. And although they were going through a time of chastisement, the promises given to Israel still stand and would never be revoked. Individuals may fall away. Generations may fall away. A whole generation may experience a divorce with God. But the promise never goes away. That's a good word. God is going to accomplish in and for Israel everything that he said he would. The Davidic line is the primary vehicle for this. Ezra keeps drawing. He he says it three times in this chapter so far because he's leading them through the worst king in their history. And he's reminding them just like Paul is reminding us in Romans leading us through the present hardening, the present rejection, uh, the Romans 2 superiority of a Jew looking down on a Gentile, leading us through all of that ugliness, he is reminding us that the promise still stands. God's word has not failed. I find that incredibly encouraging. I do too. Hey, what's verse 10? The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders took Manasseh, prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with broad shackles, and took him to Babylon. There's so much here that we want to go through, and uh, that, that becomes difficult. The geopolitical setting that is taking place is not checkers. It's, uh, it's very much chess. God is moving around nations. Assyria and Babylon are in a bit of a time of transition. Egypt was one of the first world powers to dominate the earth. Assyria was the next to dominate the earth. We're now going to come into a time when Babylon is dominating the earth, but we're presently in a time of transition. They're jockeying for power. Over these next few chapters, you're going to see God adjust the influence of nations to accomplish His will. So you cannot, you, you can't get discouraged when you see nations acting funny in our day. God is able to adjust their influence in the world yep. to make sure that His will comes about. As we're reading tonight, Assyria has subjugated Babylon. Okay, In other words, Babylon is under the thumb of Assyria. But Babylon is rising in power, and it's soon going to take preeminence over Assyria. Yep. Why is that important? Because Assyria was needed to judge the northern kingdom. But that's not the kingdom that God said would judge the southern kingdom. So he's rearranging their order and their influence in the world. Look, to that point, Psalm 33, verse 9 through 11 says, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations, no matter what they vote for. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Listen, the Lord's plan is not a democracy. He is able to move kings, principalities, and nations as he pleases, even if they're not aware of what is being done to them. Look, lastly, before we move on to the repentance of Manasseh, we want you to consider that a hook was put in Manasseh's nose, that his hands were bound with bronze shackles. Look, could there be a better picture of every man whose sin has made him a slave. Hook is in his nose and bronze is binding his hands. He's become a sinful, 
beast because his behavior has reduced him to a mere animal being led when he was born to be a king. More than that, a king that was in the line of the son of David. The king of Babylon is also going to learn this lesson in the future. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. But tonight, let us learn the lesson from reading the text rather than through personal experience. <laughs> I would prefer not to be led by a hook in my nose, yes. but listen to the voice of the Almighty God. You, you catch that God didn't just do this to Nebuchadnezzar later. He didn't just put him in a field like a beast. Manasseh's own sin caused him to be put uh, in chains like a beast and with a hook in his nose like a beast. Sin does that to every man. It's why the Newer Testament speaks of brute beasts who slander celestial powers. Okay? Everything that's written in the Newer Testament isn't at least an allusion to the old. You need to spend your life searching out why and how so that you can understand what is written. You, you can't jump to the second floor of the building without understanding the first floor. The reason that Jude writes like that and Second Peter writes like that is he is warning us the path that sin will take us down. It will reduce you to animal-like servitude. But Manasseh repents. Yeah. Yeah. Let's read verse 12 and 13 for us. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. <laughs> I don't know if he humbled himself, but we're going to give Ezra credit. I mean, he... <laughs> and when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his angel. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. See, like many of you, uh, when we were reading this, we were excited about Manasseh's repentance. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't want to go through a negative king, and we were like, man, we yeah. get to see can something we, amazing here. Can we stop on Hezekiah, please? Yeah. But look, on a personal level, there's something that we have to get down deep in our souls because this is what's happening to our nation as a whole. Yeah. On a personal level... Manasseh's repentance brings forgiveness from God. Somebody say glory. Glory. God does forgive him, and I'm sure Manasseh felt really good about that. But that does not undo the consequences of all his sin. It doesn't undo any of the consequences. Captivity is still coming. It was decreed in the time of Hezekiah. Captivity is still on the way, even though personally he's receiving forgiveness. The damage to the nation has already been done. There was bloodshed throughout the land. Those that were killed are still dead. His sons were killed in the fire. He can't undo that just because he received forgiveness. To put that into our terms, if I get drunk and drive down the highway out there and run over your kid, God might forgive me. I don't know. We'll see. You know, I hope it never happens. But he might. That doesn't make your kid alive, though. Yeah. Okay? Christians have got this really twisted. Yeah. We act like because God forgave us, there is no effect of it in the world. Yeah. That's, that is almost blasphemous, and it's why we keep repeating sin. Yeah. This is a lesson for every Christian. There's an enormous difference between forgiveness and the removal of all consequence. That's true. We have to learn this here and now because grace is being used for a license for immorality because they think the consequences will be obliterated, and look where we're at as a nation. Yeah. Let's not contribute to that level in any part amongst yeah, us. Yeah. Look, Kings doesn't record his repentance, and Ezra does. <laughs> Is that kind of odd? Yeah. You read Kings, and it's like he sucked, he was terrible, it was awful. He's the reason we're in captivity. But that's not Ezra's emphasis. 
The reason why Ezra is emphasizing this, it's because Ezra is hinting at a pattern yeah. in the national destiny of Israel. Amen. Notice there's a national destiny for Israel, very much unlike the national destiny of America. They will be chastised, but ultimately restored as a nation because of the promises of God. If you take a survey through all the prophets, you will see that always, always, the nation will return to repentance. The nation of Israel, God will bring them to repentance to himself. In our view, this will culminate in Zechariah's vision of the people of Israel looking upon the one they pierced. Do you see the cycles of prophecy there in Manasseh's life? He ultimately gets brought to repentance. Ezra records it because he is showing there is a national destiny for Israel. But that is a subject for another night. Look, let's get into uh, verse 14 and keep going on. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer top, the outer wall of the city of David, west of, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. That gate and that hill both smelled equally bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. Look, like so many who repent but then go on to repeat mistakes, think in its historical context what Manasseh is doing here. Because his time is wasted in this activity. His father Hezekiah has already been told by Isaiah that captivity is coming. And in Josiah's day, which we're going to get to tonight, Huldah reiterates this truth. Perhaps this is like every pathetic and immature attempt that believers make to lean on our own arm vis-a-vis military might. In other words, he feels forgiven and he goes right out and starts trying to build up their defenses at a time when God has said, your captivity is certain. Wouldn't that time have been better spent getting rid of every idol in his land? Well, he starts that and doesn't have enough time to finish it. Maybe because he spent too much time fishing, buying boats, whatever it was that people do. Uh, Who knows? What's verse 15? He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. <laughs> it's a concession. Look, we have to keep moving here. Manasseh, his sins have been forgiven, but that does not alleviate the consequences of his kingship in what he has led his people into. So they don't know how to worship the Lord rightly. Because for his entire reign up to this point, they haven't been. Hear me, mothers. Hear me, fathers. The idea that you're suddenly going to get something right that you've left alone in your life for a decade and it's instantaneously going to be fixed in your kids is a fallacy. Manasseh is suffering the consequences of his bad parenting over a nation. And there is no remedy for it. Now, if you're aren't familiar with that word I'm drawing on some sermons that our excellent pastors have taught us. There is no remedy for the judgment that is coming. But on an individual level, men do have a choice as to how we face the judgment. Judgment begins with the house of God, and we can start by purging our house. Look, we're excited at least to see some positive movement in Manasseh's life. 
and some positive movement in the lives of the people. As we keep going into verse 18, consider the final outcome and how men face their day. When you, when you are facing these, okay, let's, let's stop for a moment. Have you ever heard a pastor that said, look, I know that the baptism in the Holy Ghost is right, but my church is just not ready for that? Yes. Oh, I'm not the only one's heard that. No. And the wisdom of this is like if we slow walk them, then they'll all get it. We don't want to lose anyone. Yes, and you can't get back those ten pathetic years you took to slow walk them and what that invested in them. That's the situation Manasseh's in now. He led horribly, so even when he gets right personally, they're still sacrificing at high places and thinking it's okay because it's to God. They are hundreds of years past God's indictment of that practice. There is a temple in Jerusalem, the only place, the one prescribed way that they can do this, but they have been led badly now for the longest reign in Judah's history. You cannot wait till tomorrow to get something right that you know must be done today. Say, well, I'm not sure if they're ready for it. I'm sure that they are not going to be okay if you don't tell them the second you know. That's true for mothers with children. That's true for husbands with wives. You ever been caught into waiting for just the right time and it didn't come? Yes. Well, be careful you don't end up in bronze shackles and with a hook in your nose. Okay? We have got to act the moment that we know. Let's get uh, verse 18 to 20. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God, and the words of the, the words of seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God moved was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up astropoles and idols before, before he humbled himself, all are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace. And among his sons succeeded him as king. Man, all are written in the records of the seers. <laughs> it's interesting in a time like this, isn't it? Yeah. Written in the records of the seers. Look, we would love to go into the records of the seers and the way that Samuel's work is still moving forward through the generations of his disciples, but that information has already been covered in previous sessions. It's worth mentioning as we move forward that Manasseh spent the majority of his life building his own palace while neglecting the work of God. The majority of his lifetime is spent building his own palace, doing whatever he wants, engaging in idolatry, and then at the very end, in a time of distress, he repents. What happens? Where is he buried? He's buried in his own palace. And this is true of many believers. They may be saved, they may be forgiven, but they spend their lives buried in things unimportant to God. And so when their lives are over, the call of God was buried in their own palace of preoccupation. And all that we will remember of them is that. Manasseh spent the majority of his time building a palace, kind of like a man building bigger barns. And at the end of his life, he repents, but he's buried in his palace instead of with his forefathers, the kings of Judah. He is buried in the own thing that he built up for himself. The weight of that crushed him in the end. We're going to move on to uh, Ammon. But before we do, how many sermons have you heard extolling the idea of the thief on the cross? He repented in the last day of his life. That is beautiful. Have you ever heard about his children? No, you haven't. Have you ever heard about his wife? No, you haven't. 
What did his lifetime of sin do to them? Wow. Okay? This is not just about us. We have a responsibility to the world around us. By the way, Rashi, Rashi says uh, it is written that he was buried in the garden of his house because he did not merit to be buried with his forefathers. That, that's how the Jewish tradition records Manasseh. Okay? Let's pick up in verse 21. We're going to do Am- Ammon faster than any uh, king we have ever taught. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was a senator, two years. As his father Manasseh had been, Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father, Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased his guilt. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had fought against King Ammon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. Look, we don't have uh, time to go into this guy, and truthfully, you don't want to. It's obvious that Manasseh was forgiven, but that didn't undo the years of corruption sown into his son. Can we say today is the day to act? The consequence of sin was not magically whisked away, even though eternal judgment was avoided. What if life is about more than just, do I inherit heaven or hell? What if it's about a lot more than that? Regarding Ammon, the singular scripture that came to our minds was Matthew 26, 52. Put your sword back in its place, for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. See, one has to wonder if Jesus had not been reflecting on Ammon. If you come to power by relying on worldly means, then you will lose that power to the hands of those who also rely on worldly means. Jesus, as a son of David, did not inherit the kingdom based on worldly means, and he did not allow his followers to use worldly means because he's instructed by the history of his people. Look, on a practical note, something we want you to understand is that as judgment approaches, the Lord's tolerance or patience begins to dwindle. The window that you have comes to a rapid closing. So when we say today is the day of salvation, salvation. we mean that in the past you might have had 55 years, but now you have two years. His window of judgment comes to a place where you must make a decision And slowly getting around to it over eight years is not going to cut it. Look, 1 Timothy 5, 24 through 25 is a scripture that has been floating around in our body and accurately comments on this subject. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. But verse 25, in the same way, good deeds are obvious. Amen. Even those that are not cannot be hidden. Listen, we are going to be children of the light that are not playing a risk game or a risk assessment with God's judgment. We've heard his warning, and we're going to let our good deeds be obvious to all those that are around in full transparency, repentance, and faith. Are you ready to get into the reign of Josiah? I am. Look, we did that one chapter in one hour. That's half the time we would normally do it in. Now we need to do two chapters in one hour, and we're going to do it. Listen, get 34 verse 1. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He was 8 years old when he became king. Think about that. 
an eight-year-old receiving what he had gotten from his father, and he reigns 31 years. Josiah is the youngest king in Judah's history, and he only lives to become 39 years old. Mm. He dies at 39. This proves that a life can be brief, but profound, when the calling of God is the central focus. Amen. Amen. I'm counting on it. (laughs) Long life is not the answer. In fact... The men who have done the most for the kingdom of God had very short lives. Ask Jesus the Messiah. Pick up in verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, as opposed, and carved idols and cast images. Look, I, the math in this is not difficult, but it's thrown around rather flippantly. So I, I, we're just going to do it for you. When Josiah was 16 years old, he began to seek the God of his father. This really should get the attention of every parent in this room when you are thinking about what you call teenagers. They are not children. They are young, but they are responsible to the kingdom of God. Teenager is not a biblical word. It's not a biblical concept. No. And your lessening of their responsibility to the kingdom of God is not biblical. It's, it's wrong altogether. At 12 or 13 years old, they are an adult. You are either a child or an adult. If you are 12 or 13 or older in this room but not yet 20, raise your hand. Okay, so you're adults. You just suck at it right now. It's our job to teach you to be good at it. Parents, if you wait for them to become what you think of as an adult, you will never get back those years. That's a good word. So we're going to start now. Amen. Amen. Amen? By the time Josiah was 20 years old, that's military age in Israel, he went to war on idolatry in the kingdom. And... It's a kingdom that God held him responsible for since the age of eight. How do you think about your eight-year-old? Okay, Because God made this man king at eight. And by 16, had a full grasp of his heart. And by 20, he was advancing the kingdom in every direction. Amen. Rethink the level of responsibility you believe from eight forward your children have. Get verse 4 and 5, Linton. Under his direction, the altars of the Baal were torn down. He yeah. cut to pieces the incense altars that were above him and smashed the Asherah poles, the idols and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Amen. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and so purged Judah and Jerusalem. They didn't give up those bones willingly. <laughs> when you think about piety, I'm sure the first thing that came to mind is slaying pagan priests and burning their bones on top of an altar. You know, but Josiah was a man who took the word of God seriously since his youth. And a man of God from Judah had prophesied that this would occur hundreds of years earlier. Would you like to hear it? Yes. First Kings 13, 1 through 2. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Now, we've been together a little while. There are a few Jeroboams. This is Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the very first one in the north. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. 
he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here. And human bones would be burned on you. 300 years have passed. 300 years. God doesn't forget his word. Look, this word, as he just said, had been given hundreds of years earlier. But the underlying truth that we must remember, obtain, and hold on to is that God's word remains true. No matter the circumstance or the difficulty, he will see it accomplished. Reading the king's account of the life of Josiah, it is clear that he worked to reform both the northern territories as well as the kingdom of Judah. So he started in Judea and worked his way outward. Look, the next few verses in Chronicles are going to point to this as well. And as an overarching theme as we read it that we've emphasized many times but seems to be like a cockroach. There are no lost tribes. No lost tribes, period. It's a myth. It's on recording. It's in your ears. You're going to hear Josiah sending people out and causing revival among the northern ten tribes. Just like Hezekiah did. There is never a time in Israel's history that you cannot account for every tribe. That is a lie produced by Palestinians. Verse 6 through 8, Brother Linton. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Sidney, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the asherah poles, and crushed the idols of power, and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joash, the recorder, to, the, to repair the temple of the Lord. Great name. Look, this all happened in what year of his reign? 18. The 18th. He started when he was 8. What's 18 plus 8? 26. 26. When Josiah was only 26. Do we have any 26-year-olds? Close? When he was only 26 years old, he began to purify the land and the temple. Oh. Say, and the temple? And the temple. Look, if he were in the Obama administration as an intern, he would still be on his parents' insurance at that time. If he were a millennial, Biden time. he would still have been living in their basement and asking for gas money. But this young man purifies the land, the entire land, and the temple. We need to adjust our expectations in this house tonight. The book of Numbers, by the way, have Levites working at the age of 20 time, 25 Full time for the Lord. Yeah. Not waiting until they're 35, 40, or 50 when they're wise enough. But 25, that is working age. Look, the temple had already been restored by Hezekiah, but it suffered contamination, pollution, and devastation under Manasseh. Hezekiah restored and purified everything in the temple, and then Manasseh devastated. Remember something from Hezekiah's day, though. Hezekiah is the great-grandfather of Josiah. And to put this into perspective, we're going to read 2 Kings 20, 16 through 18. It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. This is spoken to Josiah's grandfather that it will be carried off to Babylon. 
Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away. I wonder what's going through Josiah's mind when his granddaddy tells him that. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. <laughs> wow. So Josiah knew about this prophecy. So why take the time to repair the temple? I mean, if they're going into captivity anyway, what use is it? The answer to that question is that the proper repair and function of the temple and priesthood would save lives. Amen. And God is always interested in saving lives. When people have heard us over the last few months talking about the coming judgment that we're in the days of Jeremiah, I've heard people say, well, if you believe that about America, why are you building churches and planting ministries? I'm glad you asked. The answer is that the proper function of the church and real ministers will save lives. Amen. Amen. And that's what God wants to do. We're we're not interested in collecting real estate dividends for the rest of our life. We're interested in saving lives. Look, it was right to to, uh, prepare uh, or repair the temple, even though it would later be destroyed. We're going to cover the book of Jeremiah in the coming weeks, and it will become even more clear. Jeremiah bides a deed to the land that he knows is going to belong to Babylonians because it's not going to belong to the Babylonians forever. We are working at something eternal, not not something temporal. For now, just take note that even in a time of great apostasy, a time of persecution, a time of impending judgment, revival can happen in conjunction with it. It must happen. This is the setting of Matthew 24. It's, it's the setting of the book of Matthew and the book of Revelation. I want to read to you just a couple passages. This is Matthew 10:21. Think about it in the light of the context we're right now covering. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child, much like Manasseh did. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm till the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, give up and stop. Flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, for reasons that I don't think we have opportunity with our time to go into, This verse is best understood in light of the times of Manasseh and Josiah. Judgment is coming. It is unavoidable. And those agreeing with God will be persecuted. But simultaneously, revival will be spreading through Israel right up to the coming judgment of God as revealed in the coming of Messiah. It was not a statement about the lifetime of the apostles. It was a statement about the status of Israel at the coming of Messiah. Uh, What's Matthew 24? Matthew 24, verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Listen, saints, these things are during impending judgment. 
There will be hatred. There will be betrayal. There will be false prophets and the love of most growing cold. And yet there will also be a testimony to all nations. Amen. Amen. Listen, when we hear these kind of things, this is something I want you to say with me, Rob. You ready? There will be. There will be. One more time. There will be. There will be a testimony to all nations during these times. Not only can judgment and revival coincide, they're going to in our day and time. It is a reality. It is a fact of the trajectory that we are on. And we are living in days that are like Josiah. And we will be like Josiah as we live through them. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Look, a righteous remnant will be revealed in the midst of hatred, betrayal, and apostasy. That is when a righteous remnant is most revealed during that time. Amen. Most of revivals in history have taken place in a time of complete and utter devastation, sickness, persecution, and the like. Amen. That is how revival starts when those things come upon the body of God and the body of God realizes the judgment that's coming and stand up under the persecution and be who it's called to be. That's what makes revival revival. It's reviving to something out of a tragedy. Josiah is a reminder for us here today that even in the face of certain judgment, we are facing certain judgment in this nation right now. Can you see it? Things are going from bad to worse all of the time. Now it's acceptable to do church from your computer screen. Not even just show up in church. Amen. Amen. Not to the people of God. These are all signs that we will face certain judgment in this nation. But it is God's prerogative to save those who will be saved. Here's why this is so important and why we wanted to camp on this a little bit and work to get to it. Josiah knows that judgment is coming. He's not repairing the temple so that he can avert judgment. He's, re- he's repairing the temple because judgment yes. is coming. He's rebuilding the very building that he knows is going to be burned with fire because of the distinction. He's standing with God in the judgment and saying, I'm not serving you for secondary gain. I'm serving you because it's right that I do so. And he invited everybody else to do it. It's the opposite of a gospel of greed and gain. It's the opposite of your best life now. It is God is right and I stand with him no matter what comes in or out of my life. Josiah is a good example of that. Let's pick up in verse 9 and go all the way through 15. And I really pray that these men standing in the cloud of witnesses forgive us for what we're about to do to their names. They went to the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites who were doorkeepers had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and from all the people of Judah, and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the building that the, that the kings of Judah 
had allowed to fail into ruin. The men did the work faithfully. Over them to direct them were Jehoshaphat and Obadiah, Levites descended from Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam descended from Kohath. The Levites and all who were skilled in playing musical instruments had charge of the laborers and supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes, and doorkeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Come on. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Look, I, I, uh, I would very much like to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, through the years, I have thought that they simply lost the law. Okay, I, I want you to hear this phrase and see if you might read it a little different. Okay, The book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Well, there, there are many ways to read that phrase. But there is a number of scholars that believe this was the book of the law. In other words, the one in Moses' own handwriting. Not that there weren't other copies floating around. Not that the law had gone away in some way, but they found the original. That's a different way to read that, and I would encourage you to investigate that because it has profound implications. And the text, both in Hebrew and Greek, allows for that. Okay, That would mean that somewhere... During the reign of Manasseh, perhaps because they're worshipping archons, perhaps because they're killing priests and their own sons, that they hid the one original copy in his own handwriting to protect against corruptions. Does that, is that ringing true to you? Okay. The idea then is that God preserved the original written Word for a time when men would honor it and protect it. Look, in any case, in times of uncertainty, our God has a way of making certain His will and the veracity of the Word of God. When I, when I, I read this differently today for the first time in my life, I, I wanted to start weeping thinking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Come on. Yeah. We had the same text that are the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the argument was that they had been corrupted through time. And then when we found the original copies, we knew that they had not. God did that for us in our day so that the veracity of His Word was beyond question. And it, i got to tell you, it makes me wonder what will yet be found in the days to come. Yeah? I thought y'all might like that. Let's pick up in verse 16. We're going to read quite a ways because Judas made us late. <laughs> every, every week. took the book to the king and reported to him. Your officials are doing everything that has committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Oh, yeah. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, <laughs> yeah. Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah 
about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because of our fathers, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that was written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tekosh, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, this is, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who will live here. So they took her answer back to the king. Now, I know every one of you had in mind for your next daughter, the name was going to be Holda. It was that or Hogla. Now... While Holda may not be someone that you have spent a great deal of time studying, I know there are a few women in the room that have, you may find that a little bit of research on your own time will cause you to actually love this character, to love this prophetess. Look, the scroll that Holda receives from Josiah is traditionally understood in Jewish circles to be the complete Tanakh, as in, or complete Torah, the five books. In Christian circles, they say that Josiah found the book of Deuteronomy. In any case, we're speaking about the Holy Scripture. Holvah is generally regarded as the first person to declare it as the Holy Scripture. She's looking at a book and she is affirming that it is the word of the Lord. Many times the word of the Lord is affirmed, but there's not a book present that we're pointing to. So we're saying this word that came from the Lord is also the Lord's word for right now, as in the right word for the right time. Like whether Holder is the first person to declare or confirm the written scripture or written scroll as the Lord's word after its writing or not is doubtful. But she is the first recorded woman to do so in the scripture. She's not the first person, but she is the first woman to do it. Okay. What, what we're quoting from, by the way, are a couple scholars as far back as 1783 <laughs> that have made that assertion within Judaism and then within Christianity. We, we don't share their opinion. But she is the first woman to look at the book of the law and declare it scripture. That's incredible. Yeah. Ladies, you have a, an important role to play. To hear the word of God, agree that it is the word of God, and stand on it? Well, that's a heart-turning superpower. Look, consider the situation for a minute. There's some serious pressure. Five men plus a king who are hoping for a favorable response. They're changing everything. Send to this prophetess. Look, some people have even speculated that 
they did sin for her instead of Jeremiah or Zephaniah, who are contemporaries during Josiah's reign, because they thought they might get a compassionate or favorable response from the woman prophetess rather than Jeremiah. But she towed the line, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. She said exactly what the Lord was speaking, which was that God's judgment was certain, unavoidable, and the consequences of sin were going to come to fulfillment and it would reach their doorstep. Listen, this is a time of distinction for those that stand up for the truth of God's word. Men, women, and children, that we grab hold of what God has said, regardless of what it means for us, our family, or our times, and we stand for it like this prophetess. Now, consider something for just a second. Jeremiah is alive and in the city, but they don't go to him. Zephaniah is alive and in the city and they don't go to him. That, that begs the question of motive. What would have happened if Holder said, I don't know, it doesn't sound right to me. I believe God's a, a compassionate and loving God who would never do this. Mm. See, this is a tipping point in world history. And yet again, ladies, a woman stands up and gets it right in the absence of the men that should be doing it. Now, why? I don't know. I just know that she got it right. Come on, Pat. You can turn things around. Joe, have you ever gotten a word that you knew was right Come on. and it came through the mouth of a woman? In this church, we do believe in strong male leadership. That should never diminish a female in this room. In fact, it ought to make it easier for you to discern when a woman is speaking the very words of God as Deborah did and Barak recognized it. We need to wake up to this and not fall into the caricaturization that is often said about us. Like somehow or another we're male-dominated. No, we recognize that women very often hear from God, get it right, and we are man enough to listen when they do. We just also have the responsibility to lead if they haven't. We do not abdicate it. It's not one or the other. It is very much and and both. Hold up gets this right. Listen, we are working to replicate the actual ancient path, not some masculine version of holiness that is devoid of actual holiness. We're looking to replicate the ancient path that we see in the scripture. Consider the setting that we have going on right now. They discover the ancient book of the law and begin to conform their life to it. We have a female prophetess that would be the unlikely candidate because she's not prominent in Scripture in the same way that Jeremiah and Zephaniah are. And a king who started out at eight years old working together to stand for God's purposes in dark times. Does that sound like a recipe to save the world? I mean, that's not how I would have done it. But then again, God never does it how I would do it. And I suspect he doesn't do it how you would do it. Our job is to get with his program, not try to invite him into ours. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, Mm. and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. 
Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin placed And where? Everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin. That is north of Judah. Keep going. Placed themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. From Where? some of the territory? All. All the territory. In this, in this context, who are the Israelites? The northern tribes. And he, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now notice the outward radiation of truth here. It starts with a handful, a child king, a prophetess in Jerusalem, but then it spreads to every territory. This was true in Josiah's day, and it's also true in the book of Acts. You see the same pattern that exists. A small group of scared Jewish disciples grab a hold of the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit, and it naturally radiates. It wasn't a pressure. It wasn't something they had to be praying to happen. It naturally happened. It radiated. What begins with you, say me, <coughs> me, can spread to the whole world. Okay. It all starts with returning to the veracity. Say veracity. 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 Of God's word. That is everything in spreading the truth. Returning to the veracity of God's word. Without returning to the veracity of God's word, you have nothing. National revival can and will coincide with national judgment. What revival looks like is men and women of God grabbing hold to the truths of God's word, not erasing them, not eliminating them, grabbing hold of the truth, and then running with it. So we're going to go to the 35th chapter, and we're right on schedule. We have 30 minutes to do it. I I know that uh, this is a lot of information. We're covering a lot quickly. But your ears really should be tuning in to Josiah's situation. Judgment is coming. It's unavoidable. It's been accounted. But his actions are righteous and he's leading people to righteousness in the midst of impending judgment. Because that is the situation you find yourself in. That is where our focus will be for the next, I don't know how many ever years. I guess we'll we'll find out. Okay. Uh, Let's pick up and... Chapter 35 and verse 1, and uh, we're going to go through 6. Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites, who instructed all Israel and who had been consecrated to the Lord, put the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built. It is not to be carried about on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord, your God, and his people. Okay, I'm going to stop you before verse 6, because this verse shouldn't be needed. <laughs> you, you shouldn't have to tell the Levites, stop carrying around the ark out there. Because in Solomon's day, it was placed in the temple permanently. Except somewhere between Solomon's day and now, it became a mobile ark again. It's not supposed to be. This, this verse shouldn't be needed. And I don't want to convolute the issue. I, I'm, I'm going to clarify that for you. But the other interesting thing about this is, how many times did God pass over uh, death of Israelites within Egypt? Once. 
but they commemorated it every year. They weren't doing it to get death to pass over. They were doing it because it was the right thing to do, and it was a testimony about God's character. Amen. When we are facing coming judgment, it's not about the judgment not coming. It's because it's the right thing to do, and we're commemorating God's character. But back to this ark issue. Second Chronicles 5.7 says this, The priest then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and covered the ark with its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends extended from the ark and could be seen in front of the sanctuary, but from the outside of the holy place, they are still there today. If we had time to do it, we would show you that this is the ark's final resting place and that the Bible says it again and again and again, except in Josiah's day, it's not there. The ark should have been stationary. It should have been stationary since the time of Solomon. Perhaps he was being moved about to prevent its corruption under the reign of Manasseh. See, Manasseh is bringing in foreign altars. He's bringing in foreign gods. He's killing priests. He's killing the royal descendants. Maybe some Levites got it out of there so that nothing happened to it. Those implications have led to many theories about the Ark in Ethiopia, uh, elsewhere, but it's beyond the scope of our meeting tonight. I would just simply clue you into it. This is a biblical oddity that I've never heard anybody discuss. I, I, doubt in, I doubt you own more commentaries than I do, and they do not talk about this. For some reason, that ark had become mobile, and there's no indication in this text that they comply with this request. Do you, do you follow me? He says you shouldn't move it about, put it there. But there is no indication that they did move it there, which brings up all kind of questions that I don't want to get into tonight. <laughs> Let's read verse 4. Prepare yourselves by families and divisions according to the directions written by David, king of Israel, and his son Solomon. Look, Josiah is returning to the old wine of David here, like Luke 5, 39. Instead of corrupted religion of Ahaz or Manasseh, he's going back to the original standard. He's finding his real father. He's returning to the ancient paths that Jeremiah was prophesying about. More than that, he's returning each man to his God-ordained family function. Amen. It's almost as if your pastor's here from God, and he's tuning us up like Josiah for the days that we live in for our family divisions. Because we are ready to face the judgment and destroy idolatry in this house. Let's do verse 5 and 6. Slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves, and prepare the lambs for your fellow countrymen, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. Look, they're returning to the ancient paths. He's speaking now to the priests and the Levites, telling them to lead the people in what was right. They have not been doing this for so long, and now they are standing doing what, what is supposed to be done for the people. Man, what happens whenever the priest in the entire nation gets right and begins to help the people in their sacrifices? Man, that's revival, isn't it? Yeah. Pick up in verse 7. Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offerings, and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. 
Notice that the king of Israel is providing for the people of Israel. Come on. And, and let's, let's take it a step further. We, uh, we probably should have put a slide up, but we didn't. <laughs> Hezekiah does the same thing, but it's 7,000 and 1,000. This is 30,000 and 3,000. In other words, what Hezekiah did was the best that had been done since the days of David until Josiah showed up yeah. and he goes even further Come on. than that. Come on. Uh, let's, let's jump into verse 8 and go through 15. Yeah. His officials also contributed voluntarily to the people and yeah. his priests and Levites, Hezekiah, yeah. Zechariah, and Jehiel. The administrators of God's temple gave the priests 2,600 Passover offerings and 300 cattle. Also, Kananiah, along with Shemaiah and Nethanel, his brothers, and Hashbaiah, Jelio, and Jezebel, the leaders of the Levites, provided 5,000 Passover offerings and 500 head of cattle for the Levites. Just pause for a second for me. You see how the king and the Levites are setting an example that trickles down to every member of the congregation? Yeah. See, we are going to be a church that everyone is sacrificing and ministering together, and we get to participate in God's revival. Amen. The servants was arranged, and the priests stood in their places with the Levites in their divisions as the king had ordered. The Passover lambs were slaughtered, and the priests sprinkled the blood and handed to them while the Levites skinned the animals. They set aside the burnt offerings to give them to the subdivisions of the families of the people to offer to the Lord, as written in the book of Moses. They did the same with the cattle. They roasted the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed and boiled the holy offerings in pots, cauldrons, and pans and served them quickly to, the people, to all the people. Come on. After this, they made preparations for themselves and for the priests. Because the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fat portions until nightfall. Amen. So the Levites made preparations for themselves and for the Aaronic priests. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, were in the places prescribed by David, Asaph, Heman, and Jethan, the king's seer. The gatekeepers at each gate did not need to leave their posts because their fellow Levites Look, rather than talking to you about military intelligence, brothers serving shoulder to shoulder to accomplish the work, we simply want to emphasize that Josiah is following the law to the letter. Yeah. In Hezekiah's time, they celebrated the Passover and it was good, but it had to be in the wrong month. And it also featured priests that had not consecrated themselves. You remember he prays for the people that they might be healed? Look, this is the best Passover in the history of Israel's time since the days of Samuel and David. And it's on the eve of judgment. Consider that for a moment. The best Passover since the times of Samuel and David. And we're at the precipice of Babylon coming in and wiping everything out. It's almost like when the stakes get the highest, the people get the most consecrated and the most devoted. It doesn't avert judgment. It causes them to agree with the judgments of God and prosper through them. They were clearly not doing this to escape judgment. They were doing it because they were right and they were agreeing with God. That's a principle that we must revive that is not present in our culture. We do things for what we will get, not because they're right simply anymore. But the word of God is our standard, and we will do what is right in the face of judgment, no matter what it means for us. Verse 16 through uh, 19. So at that time, the entire entire service of the Lord was carried out 
for the celebration of the Passover and the offering of burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord. As King Josiah had ordered, the Israelites who were present celebrated the Passover at that time and observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. The Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. Come on. None of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were there, there with the people of Jerusalem. Put this that fact, into perspective. You know that your temple is going to be burned. You know your people are going into captivity. But you show more devotion than has ever happened before. See, that is what we're expecting of this group. It's it's not the promise of blessing and prosperity that we are alluring you to the service of God like we're trying to bribe you. We're telling you it's going to get harder than it's ever gotten before. It's going to cost more than ever. That the generosity of a few will no longer work. It has to be the mutual sacrifice of all. Amen. And that it's our best days. And we've been longing for them. Come on. Because we yeah. agree with the word of God and we want to see the word of God come about. Yes. Yeah. Verse 19. This Passover was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign. <laughs> The best Passover that had ever been celebrated since Samuel and David. 26 years old, and look what he has accomplished. You know what I call that? A life that had not been wasted. I mean, when we speak, when we speak about judgment, so many people will say, well, why do, it the, why do what you are going to do? Why do it if you know judgment is coming? I say Josiah was the type of man who understood that judgment was coming, and he said, I am going to shine brighter than anyone else that has ever come before me. He used that upper. He, he was a type of man that said, I was born for such a time as this. Yeah. And he led his generation in saying, look, judgment is coming, but we will not be the recipients of that judgment. We will stand where we know we're, that we are supposed to stand, and we are going to make a dent in the enemy's kingdom yeah. while judgment is coming. That is a life that is not wasted. So imagine that it's your last day. Last day on earth. Tomorrow you die. How do you live it? Okay. Because that response says everything about what you think about God. Yeah. If it's your last day on earth so you might as well catch a movie, that says an awful lot. <coughs> yeah. These people know that their time is short and they want to spend it well. Amen. Come on, there's something to be learned from that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Come on. 26 years old and look what he's accomplished. Come on. If you're in this church and you're under 30, well... By 33, Jesus provided salvation for the world. So let that be pressure for you. Verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What quarrel is there between you and me, O king of Judah? Is it not you? It is not you I am attacking at this time but the house with which I am at war. God told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me, or you, or he will destroy you. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Nico had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. You know how we caught something earlier about the book of the law? Yeah given by Moses, yeah. and it might be the book. Yeah. 
I never noticed this before. I've always taken this as every king believes that he has a divine mandate and that's what Necho is talking about. What if it's not? Okay, Listen to this phrase that Ezra throws in. It's Ezra who is saying it. Necho had said, at God's command. He's not saying that Necho said it was God's command. It's verse 22. He would not listen to what Necho had said at God's command. See, Necho had been sent by God to slow the rise of Babylon so that the timing of judgment would occur in the right time period. And Josiah is in the way of it. God actually sent Necho, according to Ezra. Okay? Necho fought more than one battle with yeah. Babylon. And ultimately, he loses at just the right time so that Babylon would rise and invade and destroy Judah. I want to show you that in the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 46 in verse 2. It's actually their second battle, but it's the only one referenced in Scripture other than Chronicles here. It says, This is the message against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was defeated at Carchemish on the Euphrates River by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, if you didn't catch it, the point is that Josiah, much like Jehoshaphat, an earlier king of Judah, found himself in a battle that he shouldn't be in, in a disguise that he shouldn't be wearing, shot by an arrow that he shouldn't be being shot with. He failed to discern what God was doing in his time. Some even believe that Necho was from Ethiopia, And although he has the throne of Egypt, that he descended from Ethiopia, and that's led to to speculation that he possessed the ark. And that's why why Josiah said, hey, Levites, put that ark back in the temple. And that might be why Josiah is out there fighting with him. But whatever the case is, so that we don't get into wild speculation... The truth remains that God had spoken to Necho and he was on a mission and Josiah was getting in the way of it. We need the right word. We need the right word at the right time. Revival that we're seeking is always based on the word and the spirit properly applied to your situation. You say, well, God doesn't want our nation to be led by whoever's leading it. Well, you might not be right about that. He might desire for you to have a pitiful leader because it's what you deserve. And it might be how he's bringing judgment on a nation that he's prophesied about. We need to be very careful not to consult the drop-down menu. Now, it would be much better to say these kinds of leaders were not what God originally designed. But he may have given you what you asked for. You know? Uh, Let's pick up in verse 23 with the archers. Archers shot King Josiah. And he told his officers, take me away, I am badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot and put him on the other chariot he had and brought him to Jerusalem where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Now this is an event in scripture that gets uh, commemorated. In fact, it's an end times commemoration about the weeping and mourning that occurs over this. But do you also hear the similarities to Jehoshaphat? Another righteous king? Friends, we need to be in the right battle at the right time. 
It's not enough for you to work from your database of what you think the Lord does and doesn't do. We actually need to hear from God because the stakes are high. They're high in what we're doing. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourn for him. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah. Saints, what book are we studying next? Yes, we are. Keep reading. And to this day, all the men and women singers commemorate Josiah in the lament. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the lament. The other events of Josiah's reign and his acts of devotion, according to what is written in the law of the Lord, all the events from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So saints, Jeremiah writes laments that Ezra records here. You can find those in Jeremiah 1, but we're not going to go there tonight because soon enough we'll be in it. In Zechariah 12, this event is referenced and it relates to the cycle that has been rolling through Israel where there is impending judgment, revival, and causing people to turn back to the ancient paths in their Savior. We want to read to you out of Zechariah 12, picking up in verse 9. I'm going to read to you 9, then 10 and 11, and Justin will take over from there. And this is our last passage of Scripture tonight, so if you need to rouse yourself, do that. This is one that you want to understand. So Zechariah 12, verse 9. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Saints, when you hear, on that day, in the prophets... It's a safe assumption 90% of the time we're speaking about Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And that is the case in verse 9. Now the cycle of Manasseh to Josiah has played out in Israel's history many times. There's imminent judgment, but then there's revival in the midst of the imminent judgment. And Zechariah is describing a time frame that is that day where this is at its height where the cycle has reached its fullest potential. And I will pour out on the house of David, whom I have a covenant with forever, enduring, forever, house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Listen, in the midst of judgment and loss, revival is happening for those who have the right word for the right time. The connection here with the valley or plain of Megiddo and Hadad Ramon is that is where Necho killed Josiah. In the midst of their largest revival, but also a time of impending judgment, this is where righteous Josiah died. And the writer here, Zechariah, is saying, in that day, Yom Yahweh, the nation will react in the same way. So string some of this together. Ezra just said that Jeremiah wrote laments about it. The place in which it occurred at Hadad Ramon, that same kind of utter despair and weeping because of judgment in the midst of the best Passover that God's people have ever had in communion with the living God is going to go on all at once. This is what our bride is called to. This is what we are building towards. 
Verse 12 says, the land will mourn. Have you been hearing that throughout tonight? Yeah. Yeah. That the land was going to vomit them out? That the land was suffering? The land would judge them? It's the same way in the coming days and at the end time of Israel. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. It's speaking of a time where there will be judgment in Israel in the future, but a revival going on at the same time, and they are mourning because of something. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, speaks about what they're going to mourn about. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. It goes on in chapter 14 to say they will look on the one that they have pierced. They will look on the one that they have pierced and a revival will start in the midst of judgment. Look, the result of those who endure judgment with sober assessment. Say sober assessment. Sober assessment. Those who endure judgment, judgment on the nations around them, judgment on the nation that they're in, and judgment towards their own house. Those who endure that judgment, the cleansing of your own sin, the refining of your life in the fire of God's judgment, with sober assessment of God's working will always receive a fountain of cleansing and refining. This is what the end times will look like. This is what it looked like in Josiah's time. They received a fountain of cleansing and refining because they endured with sober assessment. That is what is coming for our body here. That's why we're sharing what we're sharing. That's why the Spirit is leading us to be in these chapters because a time of judgment is coming for this house and the nation all around us. And for those of us that endure with sober assessment, say sober assessment. Sober assessment. It will not be a time of purging you out. It will not be a time of rooting you out of this place. It will be a time of cleansing and refining in this house if you can endure through it. So I said that that was our last scripture. But I realized that we have six minutes and 40 seconds left. Could we put Daniel 3, 16 on the screen? I'm going to suggest... That the little old lady who taught you Sunday school and probably had not one idea what she was talking about was still investing in you an attitude that you're going to need. Amen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abimbola (laughs) replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Love the next verse. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, think judgment, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. One more. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, (laughs) that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I think that this encapsulates the attitude that we need to carry forward with. 
We're not going to escape from judgment. We're going to walk right through the fires, praising our God. And I do believe that he will save you through it rather than from it. But even if not, it's still the right thing to do. And we are not going to give the enemy the satisfaction of seeing us disagree with God in his judgments. That kind of distinction has been inspiring people, well... For more than 2,500 years now. Come on. And when they see it in your lives, I think that is the thing that will cause the nations of the world to both hate you and a remnant to flock to you because they want to be just like you. Would you all stand to your feet? There are some things that we'd like to talk about. Go ahead. I'm going to go back to sorcery. You You do what you like. I trust you. I trust you. So Elder Eric shared the attitude that we're all to walk out with, walk out of this room. I want to share an action item, and then Elder Eric's going to close us out. (laughs) An action item. Knowing what you know comes out of Philippians 2.14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. When do you see stars the best? When it's dark. When it's dark. It's going to get darker, and this is how we are going to shine, is by living this out, living the judgment out without grumbling or arguing. No grumbling, no arguing. You know what else we're not going to do? No sorcery, no divination, and no witchcraft. Amen. As we're closing, let's put that back into a perspective that we can relate to. No worldly techniques to gain influence. We're going to rely on the Spirit of God. No consulting worldly sources for knowledge. We're going to rely on the Word and Spirit of God. And here's the big one. No trying to control the behavior of others through carnal means. We're going to wait for the Spirit of God to manifest and do that work. Examine the way that you rule your family, that you rule your children, the way that you are operating in the world tonight. Because I don't think Manasseh woke up one morning and said, I really want to piss God off. I think he just did what seemed natural until the most devilish things in the world seemed okay to him. And I've watched the same thing happen to an awful lot of Christians, and I don't want it to happen to me. The Lord can open a fountain in here tonight. He can free you from the need to manipulate others. He can free you from the faithlessness that causes you to look to other things for security and knowledge. And He can certainly be that spirit inside of you that causes you to be influential so that you don't need to look to any other source. And we want that. Father, we're asking here tonight...